everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk, or Nowhere to Run, depending on which feed you are listening to this podcast on. And before I get started with today's show, I wanted to briefly just give an uh, uh, advertisement, if you will, for podcasts. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about podcasts in general, and I've said before that I think the, that podcasts are just very, very hard to censor. I think that they will be the last stand in terms of free speech. If things ever get really bad, podcasts will be one of the last things to go. And I think it's possible that they may never go if, if we can really make some good decisions here in this next uh, little bit about how we develop the next phase of podcast 2.0 as it's starting to uh, be known as. And I won't go through all the details right now. Uh, I do want to do that. In fact, the first few uh, versions of this particular episode, I've been going through all the details, but I think I'll just skip that and get to the main point, which is that a lot of the news I've been getting today, um, the censorship has already started. We've, we've seen the censorship in places like YouTube and, and Facebook and all those things, but I'm starting to see it really in the search engines, like the things that I want to find. It's not like it was years ago where the search engines would just tell you what's out, the, out there on the internet. Now it's very obviously manipulated. It's, it's almost worthless, especially for anything that goes against the party line. So, and that's just not how it was. So it's getting to the point where podcasts are the only thing that I really continually have that are giving me uh, the news that I am interested in. And that made me think about how important it is to support the podcasts that you listen to. And I'm not talking about me. I'm not asking for donations. I haven't asked for a donation since uh, I started this uh, podcast again, maybe almost two years ago now. Um, that's not to say I won't. I'm, I'm just saying that I would like to encourage people to do that as a part just realize how much of the information that you get on a daily basis is from podcasts and how important they are to the future. Um, it's a really good idea and it's hard. That's the thing I really want to get across to people. The reason that we don't do that already, if you don't, is because it's hard, especially there's no easy button, you know, there's no, there are some podcast apps, by the way, that are trying to make it really easy, but that's another story for another day. But the point is you got to go to their Patreon, go to their website, go to, to their um, Bitcoin thing in some cases, and each one's different and all this other stuff. It's a lot of work to do. But I think it's a worthy work to do. And I just also wanted to briefly mention some podcasts that I've been listening to. Just pick four here that I think you should listen to as well if you're interested in the newsy kind of stuff. This is mostly just basically the same kind of format. Uh, two people reading the news and analyzing it kind of thing. So here are four of the, that genre of podcasts that I, I think you should listen to if you don't already. I've mentioned No Agenda before with Adam Curry and, uh, and John C. Dvorak. Uh, we've got Basil and Gons over there at Canary Cry News Talk, which is a great podcast you should listen to. We've got Tim and Andrew at Revelations Radio News, Revelations Radio News. And another one, I, I've really just found this one recently and really think it is great analysis of propaganda, is the Propaganda Report. Uh, so those are four of my favorite of that genre. Two people giving you the news that I would find really hard to get in other ways. So in this podcast, I wanted to try to wrap in a bow to almost summarize what I think about where we are with regard to Bible prophecy. This is a Bible prophecy podcast after all. So 
and I just did, you know, a lot of research that I think really helped me to wrap my mind around some of the loose ends that I was wondering about. And so I guess I'm kind of in a position now to, to really say, where do I think we are in the end times uh, timeline? And I'd like to try to answer that question in a way that is neutral with regard to rapture timing position, okay? Um, because I think if a person has a good hermeneutic, that is the way that they interpret the Bible is more or less literal, they're premillennial, you know, most of the people that would be listening to this podcast would agree on the things that I'm going to lay out about why I believe the way I do about our place in the end times timeline. But part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is because I did have an observation about having the wrong, what I considered the wrong position on the rapture, how that's really going to cause some problems for Christendom, in my opinion, uh, down the line. But that's an, another story. I'm just going to sort of tack that on to the end of that, this, even though that observation is pretty much why I turned the microphone on today. Um, so let's uh, just get into it. And I think that some of you that have listened to this podcast for the past uh, few years probably know, know what I'm about to say, which is, I don't think we are in the end times. Um, I have seen a lot of people have the sentiment Look how bad it is. Isn't it now obvious that we're in the end times? Look at these bad things or whatever. And those two things don't logically follow. We have a, we have a Bible. We have a lot of information about the end times and what signs we're to look for with them. And what this podcast is going to do is try to lay out the case of why I don't think those things have happened yet or any of the precursors to those things have happened yet. Let me cl clarify and say, I do think that we are on the cusp of what I would call, for lack of a better term, the new world order. We are about to go into a form of global something, probably communism, though, like a neo-communism, communism, I'm not sure. Maybe even before that, there'll be really bad turmoil. War is kind of what I expect for some of these things in the Bible to ever take place. There's going to be need to be some major borders changed and stuff. So I would expect some kind of war, some kind of global thing. We can all see that kind of happening. I would also say I would not be surprised if in this new system, obviously bad system that's going to be just running over us all over the place, that there's going to be real literal per persecution of Christians. I don't see any logical way out of that. I think that that's where this is going and it's probably going to get there a lot sooner than even I think. I think Specifically, I've been hearing, and I've been saying this on the podcast forever, that they're going to use the vaccine concept as a way to eventually point that as to here are the Christians, they are our problems, we could all go back to normal, we could all have fancy, awesome lives, if only the Christians weren't such dum-dums. And that's going to be a narrative that's going to be, you know, I've already seen the, the articles really trying to get that going, and I don't think it's going to stop, depending on how serious they get about the vaccine thing. Um, and obviously, they're getting pretty serious about it. So... Anyway, whether it's vaccine related or, you know, name any number of a billion things that they're already starting to build up, all the great, wonderful pillars of their system all logically conclude with Christians are the problem to us implementing this particular thing. And that brings me to another thought that I've had, that Christians are always a national security threat to communist dictatorships. And it got me thinking about truth and Christianity and how um, I think a lot of Christians, and I don't even, yeah, I think Christians almost by default, by their familiarity with the Bible as truth, 
The Bible probably does it in a way that I may or may not be able to articulate. Maybe it's supernatural or spiritual. Maybe there's some kind of worldview that that sets in motion this, this idea. But whatever the mechanism for it, Christians just can detect lies really easy. And this is talking about old ladies who never watch the news to, you know, whatever, to whatever you want to do. They, you know... <laughs> They just know it. They can look at somebody or something or hear some kind of thing, and they just they just don't believe it. And that manifests a lot of times as them trying to find a reason why the Christians don't believe it. That's, I'm thinking of a New York Times article or something that said the reason that Christians didn't take the vaccine is because they were, you know, anti-science, but specifically they thought it was the mark of the beast. And yeah, I know there are people out there that think it's the mark of the beast or the precursor to the mark of the beast or some aspect of that. But... I don't even think it's that. I just think that, that 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 Christians just can detect, you know, something not right easier than most people. And I think it's a lot to do with propaganda too. You know, I think it's it's weird that somebody that's just in darkness, just almost has no defense against the lies of Satan. In Revelation twelve, it calls Satan the deceiver of the world, and he really is. You know, I mean, he's just at every turn, and he's really, really, really smart. I think that's going to play into how this whole end time scenario comes about. We're going to get try to be tricked, um, and that's a real hard thing to do. That's my point: is that you got to really be smart to trick Christians in a fundamental way. And I'm not saying that you know Christian. I, I even think that people have that have weird, crazy doctrine in Christianity. People that may not even be saved, and you know, some kind of weird snake handling church or whatever. Even they are more protected against lies probably because of just the because they do hold the bible as true to some degree they may have it completely wrong or whatever but even that much defends them against any number of satan's lies and i think that's why uh, because those lies are often the pillars of a communist or uh, state that indeed as china says uh, christianity is a national security threat Anyway, let's see where I was with that. So yeah, I think that we're going to that. I think there's going to be persecution, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are in the end times. Chris, how could it possibly be that Christians could be killed in the streets? Let's think of the worst possible scenario. Everybody just hates, hates, hates Christians. They all believe that there were that was the only way to go back to normal. If only Christians would just not be so stupid. And then the media does its thing. It's like, I think if it was me, I would totally kill them. And then they eventually do, again, I'm just thinking worst case scenario, trying to cartoonize it. But what what will happen is, let's say that happens, that's not the end times. Again, you just have to look a little bit in history. I think I talked about this last podcast or a couple podcasts ago. 600 years, the Catholic Church was devising interesting and in, in ways the, to kill and torture Christians to death because they believed the gospel. That's and I, I, I like that example because that's like that's like fairly recent, the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, that's not that long ago. And that lasted six hundred years. Six hundred years. Our country has barely made it two hundred years. Our country times three Christians were being killed. Why wasn't that the end times, if your criteria is? But bad things can happen to us here and it not be the end times. Yeah, bad things can get way, way bad, way, 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 way much worse than this. Now, I grant you that there are a lot of interesting tools and scary things happening this time around. A global thing, for instance, is a big deal. 
And I think it's important to recognize that Satan, that, that is a key thing that Satan wants to do. Because I think an argument against all the end times aren't happening is, yes, but a world government, Chris, a world government. You're not taking account that it's a world government. Well, okay. But again, the Bi we have a Bible that tells us all these things. And a world government is an implied aspect of this, but it is by no means one of the signs we're, we're said to look for. And I've said before, a global government even a tyrannical Christian persecuting world gov government can exist for thousands of years and it still not be what we're told to look for in the Bible. That has to be sacrosanct. The, what the Bible says we're supposed to look for, the specific things are the things. And, it, and it's important, I think, to have a check on false positives for when the end times actually happens. I was thinking about this the other day. So the let's go back to the, the the inquisitions right so they were being killed for the gospel the, these people that actually believe the gospel we don't we barely know their names because they were so tortured and so killed and so underground but we get some names of some of them here and there anabaptists and things like that i don't know much about it but you know so those people surely and you know you've got the reformers certainly who believe that the catholic church was the antichrist that they were in the end times uh because here, this big machine was going around churning up Christians for believing the true gospel. So for them, when you read the writings and how they took revelation and stuff, it, it, you can see why, I mean, they were twisting scripture. Don't get me wrong. They were, they were twisting it real good, but it made sense in their situation. Was it that bad, you know, for them to believe that, you know, let's say the person that had to get killed by the Iron Maiden or any of these awful devices that they, they conceived. And that person, as they were being killed, they thought they were being killed by the Antichrist system. Maybe it even gave them more resolve as they were being killed. Is that Was that a bad thing? Were they, we now know 100% looking back on it that they were wrong, uh, that that wasn't the Antichrist and that wasn't the end times. But but how bad was that? So you could say, well, why are you being hard on people now? Surely that's, you've said it on your podcast a million times. It, that's sort of for like a Christian thing that we have done since the beginning. We've always called the big baddie of our day, the Antichrist. We've always called the persecution of our day, the great persecution. It's just how Christians have rolled for the last 2000 years. And whether, and you've heard me say this a billion times, whether it was Nero or Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan or on and on and on down the line, you can always find Christian writings that we're just absolutely sure it was the Antichrist. So what was wrong with that besides just being wrong and bad doctrine and, and that's just wrong in itself, but what's the danger in it? What was the danger? And I'd have to concede and say, well, not much, really. I mean, besides kind of looking a little foolish to your contemporaries in that day, you would say, well, they're going to always think we're foolish when we point it out. Well, yeah, but what if they were smart enough to actually look at the facts when you say, this is the end times, look, and then they look at your proof for that, trying to prove that Genghis Khan was the Antichrist in the Bible, and they'd be like, I don't see it. I, I don't think that you're doing that right. You know, a, a smart person could look at what your criteria was and see that you were twisting the scripture. So it wouldn't be, it's not great for that reason. But is it dangerous for the Christian? And I would say, generally speaking, probably not. Uh, you might make some decisions that you probably wouldn't have made if you didn't think it was the end of the world. You know, if you just saw it as like another cycle of a bad thing. Attila, Attila's going to come over the hill. He's going to sack Rome. He's going to, we've got to find a new place to live and it, whatever. But it's not the end of the world. You might make a different decision. So there's problems, but it's not, it's not huge problems. I am a little concerned that it will matter in the actual end times. 
because I do have a theory that the Antichrist will will defeat a fake Antichrist first. In order, in other words, the Antichrist wants to look like the real guy, right? He wants to look like a savior. He wants to look like a deliverer. Um, and in order to do that, in order to be seen as the actual Messiah, as the actual savior, he has to defeat something everybody universally thinks is bad. So if he is in fact going to attempt to deceive Christians, which I think Matthew 24 makes explicitly clear that he will, um, then he will need to defeat something that looks like the Antichrist. It's basically a no-brainer. That basically, And so in the actual end times, it could be a danger for the majority of Christians to believe something is the end times just because it's bad, and they twist scripture to make it the end times. That could be very dangerous if on the horizon is the actual uh, Antichrist who will defeat that baddie for them and embrace them as their savior. That could be a problem. But I admit that that's a, that gets a little bit into my own personal theories and is less uh, uh, relevant to the point of this podcast, which is to go through the actual reasons why I don't think we are in the end times right now. All right, so let's just go through this. And I've made a little list here, and I didn't do a whole lot of research on this. I'm maybe missing something big, so let me know if uh, if I am missing something. But this is just the things that I kind of jotted down about what I think the Bible says, some, some areas in the Bible that I think that we can use to determine if we are or are not in the end times. I think a good place to start is in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which is the last of the 70 weeks prophecy. And the reason that this is important is it's one of the few places I know of in the Bible that definitely gets us back to the beginning of that seven-year period. So most premillennial Christians agree that the end times will be played out over the course of seven years. Um, we don't know for sure of anything that will happen before that seven-year period. I'll go over some things that people have speculated about. But really, for the most part, most people, regardless of their view on the rapture, agree that most of the events of the end times that we are told about uh, will happen in that seven-year period. In fact, the vast majority of the events that we are told about will happen uh, after the midpoint of that seven-year period. But there are some things that I think you can reason reasonably make a case will happen in the first half of that seven-year period. So Daniel 9.27 being one of the only places in the Bible that are explicitly about that moment in time, the first part of that seven-year period, the inauguration of that seven-year period. It is a go-to place if we're going to start this study. And it says, he, speaking of the Antichrist, there's some debate about that, but the vast majority of premillennialists understand this to be speaking of the Antichrist. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of that week, he will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt. On the wing of abominations will come one who destroys until the decreed end is poured out on the one who destroys. The making of a covenant with many for one week, that one week is in, interpreted in light of the rest of the prophecy to be one week of years. Uh, it's a Jewish kind of concept. It is speaking of a seven-year period. Uh, and he will confirm a covenant. Now, you can read commentary after commentary about what this means. I know in after the 70s, uh, late 70s, and how Lindsay, everybody understands this to be a peace treaty with its neighbors, that's you have to recognize is reading a lot into that. It's possible, certainly possible, but it's definitely not what it says. It says, confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt. Now, 
on the surface, and I've made this case many times, this doesn't give us a whole lot of information about what is happening at the beginning of the week, but I think it is reasonable to infer, in light of what we're trying to do here, determine if we're close to the end times or not, that the sacrifices and offerings, which in other places you can make a very, basically a bulletproof case that he's speaking of the daily sacrifices. These are the evening and morning sacrifices uh, to make atonement for sin in the Mosaic law. That, that sacrifices and that's what's being referred to in the sacrifices and offerings that will be made to halt. But regardless, whatever they mean, they are sacrifices and offerings that take place. Uh, again, I would say in context on the temple or on a tabernacle somewhere uh, in Jerusalem. So if he's confirming a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt, then those sacrifices and offerings at the very least must have been somehow going on in between him making that covenant and the middle of the week. I would make the case that that's exactly what is happening, that he's essentially cutting the ribbon on the sacrifices and offerings. I make the strong distinction in my personal theory that that's the start of the covenant is the start of the sacrifices, which is why it says it, it conflates those two things here. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt. It's in my opinion, inferring that you understand that the sacrifices and offerings start at the beginning of the week. But regardless, the other two options you have here is that the sacrifices and offerings started at some unknown time between him making the covenant and the middle of the week in that three and a half year period, or that the sacrifices and offerings had been going on even before he makes a covenant, but they just get stopped for some reason, almost as if uh, they have nothing to do with the confirming a covenant. So they could have been going on for years before he confirmed the covenant. So those are the options you have. If we had time, I could go into that. But I do think that my point here, which is that sacrifices and offerings occurring in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount or on a tabernacle close to the Temple Mount or whatever you want to do with that, um, that's a big deal. And that is the beginning of the seven-year period, not the middle this is the beginning, I think. At least something that leads to it, right? Something that looks a whole lot like sacrifices and offerings could start in three and a half years. And I got to tell you, though there's always been a little bit of rumblings here and a red heifer here and all the stuff that, you know, evangelicals do because they kind of know that you have to do that in, the, in their heart of hearts. We're just not there yet. We're just not there yet. We That's what they want to do. Of course, that's what they want to do. I mean, are they planning on it? Oh my gosh, they're planning on it. Um, what can happen to make them want to start World War III? Because that's what would happen if they did it, especially in a national sense. Israel says as a nation, this is what we're going to do, build a temple and sacrifice animals to Yahweh on this right next to the Dome of the Rock. That's, everybody knows, that's a call to World War III in Islamic eschatology. So you don't do that, right? So that, that happening seems to be far off for me. And that's the ultimate, very beginning of the end times, okay? That seven-year period. Reason number two that I don't think we're in the end times yet is the lack of the 10 kings or this 10 nation confederacy, as it's sometimes called in Bible prophecy circles, that is spoken of in Daniel and Revelation. Really, we're, we're given quite a lot of information in the Bible about these 10 kings that the Antichrist both takes over their thing and gives them some measure of autonomy during his entire reign. In fact, it still refers to them as 10 and, and independent in a way, all the way up until Armageddon. So this 
I, I believe you can actually chart their progress from the very beginning of the seven-year period, because I do think that they're in view in Daniel 11, uh, as well as Daniel 7 and other places, where the wars of the Antichrist, which I believe take place, uh, the vast majority of Daniel 11 takes place the first three and a half years, Daniel 36 to about 45 or so, um, in which I believe some those nations being mentioned there are part of the subduing of the three kings that's spoken of in Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel 7.24 makes it very clear that the Antichrist comes after they exist. So the ten horns is the angel's interpretation. The ten horns mean that the ten kings will arise from that kingdom. Another king, speaking of the Antichrist, will arise after them, but he, the Antichrist, will be different from the earlier ones. So chronologically, it's very clear he comes afterwards, he subdues three of them, but that sub subduing really doesn't mean a wiping them off the map, which is why that word is translated many different ways. It's a humiliation in some situations. And we know because of Revelation 11 that they still exist, uh, all the way up to Armageddon, etc. So he just basically takes over that thing. Now, here's my problem with that being something that we can see right now. I, I, I've always had trouble with it being the European Union or something. But if that's what, how many countries that were in the U European Union, and I know that I've always been told in the Bible prophecy world that it could all change very quickly. And, you know, all of a sudden some people join, some people get away. And all of a sudden we got 10 of those now and the Antichrist just takes that over. Certainly possible. Uh, the, now get into a little bit of my own personal bias here, but I don't think it's anything too strong. If you listen to that recent uh, study on the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, I'm now convinced that the reason why this, 10 nation thing that the Antichrist takes over uh, is equated with the Roman Empire in some minor senses is because like the Roman Empire, it takes over all of the great sea, which is what uh, Daniel 7 sort of makes a big point of at the beginning, these, these four things rising out of the great sea. And the anecdotal stuff, of course, of every single one of those heads from uh, the empire of Egypt all the way to the Roman empire, all these subsequent world empires, which were satanic attempts to control the world. Every one of them were incrementally controlling more of the land around the Mediterranean. Anecdotal stuff, but I believe that's what the scripture is talking about. So all that to say that we don't see this. And I expect whether the 10 nations ultimately are somewhere in Europe or something like that, I do think they're a cohesive unit, one thing and that, that in some way they are like, they kind of already are controlling things from that thing somehow or another. And if that's the case, you know, you've heard Bible prophecy people say before, I don't see America in Bible prophecy, because maybe something happens to America beforehand. I don't know if any of that's the case, but it does, If and I don't have any scriptural proof for this, that they kind of are running the show to some extent. But what I can say is that if, whether it's around the Mediterranean or the different countries in the European Union, all that stuff seems to me that that stuff doesn't happen without major turmoil happening. Even if it we're talking about the European Union and we need to cut that down to 10 nations or something, which I don't know how many they got now, but it's way over 10. So it would have some major stuff would have to happen to get that down to 10. Major world changing war type stuff would have to happen to get there. So I see something happening in the interval between here and 10 nations somewhere in that area 
being a one cohesive unit for the Antichrist to take over. We've got a long way to go to get there. Can it happen quick? Yeah, it could, it could happen overnight, I suppose, in the right set of circumstances or something. But we can't, I don't think, honestly, say we're in the end times. If there's, if there's not even a possibility of that happening, then no, we're not. At least that can't happen. And then logically take that to its conclusion. If you don't have 10 nations, then you can't have a rise of the Antichrist if he comes after them. So it, you're stuck with a chronological necessity of they, that 10 thing comes before he does. So if the Antichrist is part of your end times narrative, if, if you can have an end times if you can't have an end times without the Antichrist, then we're not in the end times, I guess is what I'm saying. So that's number two. Number three, the birth pains in the Olivet Discourse are the same thing as the six seals in Revelation 6. Now, this is one of those things that almost could be argued as my personal view, and it certainly is. Uh, but this is also the view of many people that don't hold exactly my views on other things. John MacArthur, for example, understands that the seals are the same thing as the birth pains. And the reason this is important is because if you asked the average person who, you know, just wants the end times to be now and are we in the end times? Absolutely. Let me tell you why. You know, if in the old days you watch the prophecy shows and they would just be running down things in the birth pains because it was the only possibility that they ever had of saying that we are in the end times because they knew good and darn well that most of the stuff in the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, the book of Daniel, most of the end time stuff in the Bible is post the midpoint. And very few evangelicals are going to say that we're post the Antichrist sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God. So really the only thing that they ever had to say, yes, we're in the end times, was about the birth pains. They're so-called because the disciples asked Jesus what would be the signs of his coming. And he starts off with these uh, signs. He says, watch out that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will mislead many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Make sure that you are not alarmed for this must happen. But the end is still to come. For nations will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these things are the beginning of birth pains. So in theological circles, it's really an interesting thing to look at which teacher believes what, because it's really kind of right down the middle in terms of what people that I respect believe, but I think it's often uh, uh, they just haven't thought it through. But of those that have thought it through, you have people like John Walverd, who maintains that these birth pains have been going on for the last 2,000 years. And that sort of develops a theology that basically these things will always increase in intensity, that the end time started 2,000 years ago, and that there's just this intensity building towards the end times. It's a theology that comes from this in a way. The problem is, when does that start? Because yes, there's probably an increasing in intensity like birth pains when these things start, but when do they start? Do they start 2,000 years ago? Because then you're sort of forced with this other idea that earthquakes always get worse, famines always get worse, uh, wars always get worse. And that's a hard thing to maintain um, because it's not what we do see experientially. I mean, earthquakes are sort of like a sine wave and they get worse and better. And there's apparently been a lot worse in the past. And, you know, one of the things that I have a problem with this sort of Walverdian view of things is like, well, why did you make this have to start 2000 years ago? I mean, that was one of the questions I really tried to dig down of the people that believe that these birth pains are necessarily a thing that began 2,000 years ago and have just been increasing in intensity, what 
what criteria? What were they thinking? Why did they start it 2,000 years ago? Especially in light of what I think is entirely obvious, that these things are supposed to be understood as the beginning of that seven-year period, uh, which is tied to the seven seals, which both culminate. The sixth seal, of course, is the uh, cosmic disturbance sign, the sun and the moon growing dark uh, like sackcloth and blood red moon, uh, great earthquake, stars fall from heaven, exactly the same thing that happens in the chronology of the Olivet Discourse. They both end with that sign, but they also both start with the same thing, that is a false Christ, the rider on the white horse going out conquering and to conquer is understood to be the Antichrist in the first seal in Revelation 6. And that's how it also starts here in the birth pains, a, uh, a false Christ going out to mislead many. And then the wars and rumors of wars, which is exactly in the second seal. You've got the wars and rumors of wars. You've got uh, destruction and, and, and all kinds of persecution and whatever. Anyway, th these are things that you could go and, and follow the pattern. But I think it's really clear that that is the case. And if that's the case then you do not have the beginning of the birth pains until you have the Antichrist. And, and it, it's actually a kind of neat little symphony through all the places where you can kind of determine what's happening at the beginning of the seven-year period. There aren't many. As I said before, Daniel 9.27 is, I think, maybe the only place in the Bible that we know that's an event that happens in that first three-and-a-half-year period. Everything else is kind of guesswork as to what else is happening in that first half of the three and a half year period. Everybody knows kind of the chronology for the most part. Everybody knows. Uh, after the midpoint, after the abomination of des desolation, sitting in the temple, etc., then it gets much more clear what's happening in this thing than this thing than this thing. But that first three and a half years is foggy. <clears throat> but this really does kind of give us a little bit of window that and in uh, into what's happening there. Because the Antichrist showing up and the correlating here to the Antichrist showing up in the birth pains, and then the wars coming after that. It also helps you tie in Daniel 11, which I think is the exact same thing that happens. I think that the Antichrist in that first three and a half years, those wars are happening there. He's consolidating power. He's defeating Egypt, Libya, uh, I think Assyria. He's chasing Ammon and, and Jordan and Libya and all these other places or whatever. And maybe China, I don't know, the rumors in the East thing. And actually, that's another thing I've mentioned before. That term, rumors of wars here in the birth pains, it, that, if you look in the Septuagint, which you can get back into the Greek, because this is in Greek, that's an interesting word that I'm pretty sure is only other, the only other time it's used is in Daniel 11, in the consolidation of power that the Antichrist has. In other words, when the birth pain says, you're going to hear the false Christ, and then you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars, make sure that you're not alarmed. These things must happen. That's the consolidation wars of the Antichrist. In other words, Jesus starts off at the beginning of that seven-year period. He gets, obviously, to the midpoint around verse, uh, what, 29, 30? Oh, a little bit before that, actually, because he kind of starts off with the abomination of desolation in verse 15. So it gets quickly to the midpoint, but the birth pains is that first three and a half years. And I think you can absolutely confirm that if you do a study side by side, Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. If you've never seen this before, it's the first time hearing that, do that study. That will convince you, I think, that Revelation 6 and Matthew 24 are parallel to one another. And if that's the case, then it takes away, I think, really the only biblical thing. Some people talk about Gog Magog in a, in a minute because there's certainly some funny business going on there with the people that demand the end times to be already happening uh, because it is their only hope. 
because this is the only real biblical thing that they have to really try to convince somebody that the end times is now. Because if you don't have this line where you can say, oh, are we in the end times? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 24 that you're going to see wars and famines. Have, have we not seen wars and famines? Therefore, we're in the end times. I rest my case. I mean, that's exactly how this goes when somebody's trying to tell you that we're in the end times. They go to the, because they know they can't go anywhere else. So they, go, well, as I say, they, some of them try to go to Gog Magog. We'll talk about it in a minute. But they go to the birth pains and say, have you seen a false Christ? I heard Jared Leto was out in California pretending to be Jesus Christ. There you go. There's your false Christ. We've got an earthquake. I think I heard of an earthquake and, uh, before. And the uh, famines, uh, you can go find a famine or whatever. So we're in the end times. But if the birth pains are equated with the seals, then we are not in or near the beginning of that seven-year period for some of the reasons I mentioned earlier. But now we also have the added thing that we haven't seen the wars of the Antichrist, which seem to start really at the moment he makes that covenant. Uh, I would argue that if you have a person instituting sacrifices on the Temple Mount, the war that we all know will happen, will happen, which is probably why in Daniel 11 he's fighting the vast majority of the people that he is fighting are Islamic countries, what we know to be Islamic countries today. Um, maybe, maybe not, but I do think that that's the pattern. We see uh, the Antichrist make a covenant, the Antichrist go to war, the Antichrist in the midpoint declaring himself to be God after he is apparently killed right before uh, the midpoint, which I think is the very last line in Daniel 11, right before Daniel 12, uh, which is a bad chapter break in which the abomination of desolation starts. So the number four reason I don't think we are in the end times yet is because of Daniel 11. This is something I basically just alluded to, and it's a little bit complex, but it's because of the events in the beginning of Daniel 11, which are the wars of the Antichrist fighting against uh, Egypt. Some people think he is a Syrian. I think he's fighting against a Syrian. That's a whole nother thing that I've talked about before. But in any case, he certainly is fighting against Egypt and Libya and Jordan uh, and Ammon and Moab and Edom. And my point is that whatever he's doing there is a war that we haven't seen happening. The reason I think it points to us not being in the end times is because of the end of that uh, passage in which he comes to his end and no one will help him. And I think that and that's after he puts his the, the tabernacles of his palace uh, in between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So he plants his palatial tents, his armies uh, come to a rest outside of Jerusalem. That's where he plants them. And then he comes to his end. It's a really strange passage. It's like, here is a man in complete victory. That that whole passage is speaking of this man in just utter victory. It, it's really this sentiment that we see later in Revelation. Who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? That's kind of what we see in that first half. He is just rolling over people with whatever he has, this supernatural ability uh, that he has in battle. And then he plants his tents outside Jerusalem and just comes to his end. Now, I think that a lot of people read that, I say that's the end of chapter 11. So a lot of people just read it as kind of like fast forward. That's the Antichrist uh, doing some kind of wars, having some victorious, but he comes to his end. Like just sort of fast forward. Hey, yeah, I know it looks like he's doing really good here, but he comes to his end. So it's okay kind of thing. And that would be fine if it weren't for the next verse in Daniel uh, chapter 12, where it says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who watches over your people will arise. 
There will be a time of distress unlike any other from the nation's beginning up to that time. But at that time, your own people, all those whose names are found written in the book, uh, in the book will escape. Many who, those who sleep in the dusty ground will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting abhorrence. So there's no way because of that line at that time, which time, the time that he comes to his end and complete right after this weird, complete victorious moment, at that time, Michael will arise and then will be the distress, like there won't be any other time. These are obvious language terms that equate to the Olivet Discourse. And when Jesus said it will be a time like no other time before it, et cetera, et cetera, including landing on the obvious rapture, the, the people awaking to everlasting life, uh, et cetera, from the ground, the dusty ground. So, so there's no way to make the him coming to his end a picture of Armageddon or something, because clearly at that time is the midpoint, which makes sense. And, it, and I've made this point before, and this does get into my personal theories, but it, it's interesting that you look at the Midrash and stuff and how um, you know the Talmud interprets this passage. Remember, every single Christian understands this passage to be about the Antichrist. Every single premillennial Christian understands that this is about the Antichrist. But in the Midrashes, in, in the understanding of this in a lot of the Talmudic uh, interpretation, this is not a bad guy. This is Messiah ben David, who they believe will be killed by Armelis, which is a sort of Jewish Antichrist figure, right after he liberates Israel. They understand that he's liberating the people that he is defeating here in battle, Egypt, etc., Edom, Moab, are the historical enemies of Israel. So this guy has complete victory over Israel's enemies. And then he comes to his end. They understand that as him being killed by the Antichrist, but at that time, literally being resurrected by a kind of second Messiah, Messiah ben David. And then that's when the Messianic kingdom begins at this point. That's why then you have the what they see as the resurrection. They don't see it as the rapture the way we think of it, but they believe that that's the beginning of the glorious kingdom of the Messiah after this, is right after this temporary death of this guy. So you can see where that could be a problem from our... And I don't want to read too much into that because there's certainly a lot of different views on end times in, in, in Jewish uh, literature and stuff, and there's no by no means a consensus on that or anything. But it is an interesting thing. But my point here is that if I could convince somebody that Daniel 12, 1, when it says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. If I could convince somebody that that phrase there, there will be a time of trouble since never was since there was a nation, even to that time, should be equated with what Jesus says when he specifically tells you, uh, Daniel the prophet, uh, when you, therefore, when you see the abomination spoken by Daniel the prophet, so he's clearly, obviously, trying to tell you this is where I'm getting this from. And then he says, for then will be great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until that time, no, no ever shall be. If that's the case, and Daniel 12, 1 is speaking of the midpoint, which of course makes sense because they both conclude with the resurrection and, and Matthew 24, he's, you know, it's clearly angels and trumpet sounds and gathering the elect from the four winds of the heaven to the sky to be with the Lord, etc. And then you've got uh, the same basic thing happening after that in, in Daniel 12, 1, in which people are waking in the dusty ground. So it's very obvious that we're talking about chronology there. But if Daniel 12, 1 is saying at that time, connecting to the previous verse of the Antichrist's wars, 
then we have to conclude that those wars happen in that first three and a half years. Therefore, all of this seems to kind of make sense. And if we haven't seen those wars, which we can't see until we see the 10 nation thing, because the Antichrist comes after them, then we're not in the end times. We're not even seeing something that looks like the end times. We're not even seeing anything that could be the end times anytime soon. Um, and I don't think I'm reaching. I don't think it's like, well, Chris, if you plugged in the Muslim Antichrist theory or the, the alien Antichrist theory or whatever, whatever, just pick your thing, your Antichrist viewpoint doesn't change what the Bible says about the Antichrist or what he will do. You might think he has this mask on or that mask on or whatever. It doesn't matter. We're still not there. It doesn't matter if Ergodon in Turkey is mad at Greece again and fighting over some oil wells or whatever, and maybe a war could erupt there. Look, those things are important. I watch those very cl closely. In fact, I watch everything that's happening in the Mediterranean. I should say very quickly that just because I take the position that I don't see the end times yet doesn't mean I'm off the hook for, for not watching. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't watch. Like I said, I think these things could develop, develop quickly, but my position is that they haven't developed, nor do they look like they're about to develop. Uh, at this time. I don't actually have any more things on my list, but I do need to, as sort of a uh, consolation prize, talk about the Gog-Magog War. Now, the Gog-Magog War is, and Gog-Magog War theories, especially uh, among pre-tribbers, are like snowflakes. No two are alike. And boy, they're all over the board with the Gog-Magog War. And I've talked about this. I've done videos about this. I've written about this in, I think, every book I've ever written. Um, by the way, you can read every book that I've ever written for free uh, about Bible prophecy anyway at BibleProphecyText.com. BibleProphecyText.com. And just look up Gog Magog. And maybe in the last uh, book, the um, I think the best one on that is the Islamic Antichrist Debunked. So go into that book and then search for Gog Magog. And I go through all the reasons all the different theories about the timing of the Gog-Magog War. Some people think it'll happen before the 70th week. Those people are the absolute worst footing you could possibly have. I can't think of a single reason that they could win a debate against anybody that holds a different position. They're, they're the worst footing on this ever, is the people that believe that the Gog-Magog War will happen sometime before the 70th week even begins. There are some people that think it will happen shortly afterwards. They're, they're sort of a minority. Uh, and again, snowflakes here. So some of them are there. Some of them aren't. <clears throat> they talk about it in Bible prophecy conferences and muse on it and basically just come up with their own theories for no reason. And then there's the, there's the people that are a little bit better footing. The best footing that I think is also a wrong footing is that the Gog-Magog war is the same thing as Armageddon. At least I have respect for that view because... I think in a way it kind of is. I think it's a prefiguration of the Gog-Magog War. There are some elements that are very similar, such as the bird feast and things that are very hard to say, you know, and even the fact that an army's sort of approaching uh, uh, the Mount of Assembly and getting destroyed is, that's a whole other thing, but it's irrelevant to this discussion, but uh, the Mount of Assembly being Harmoed instead of Harmageddon, but it's another thing. The point is, there, there's similarities, there's elements that are clearly kind of like Ezekiel 38 and 39, and really lots of places, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Joel, the Gog Magog War is seen in lots of different places. But um, it's still not the Gog Magog War, and I know this because Revelation 20 tells us exactly when the Gog Magog War happens, okay? 
So let me just read from... Uh, let's start in Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into... This is after Armageddon. And bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and I don't know, there's a paragraph in between that one and this one. Next paragraph starting in verse seven. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it seems to me very clear that what we call the Gog-Magog War happens after the thousand years have been completed. So after the millennium, which is not a perfect thing, the millennium, there's sin in the millennium, it's not perfect, it's not the full completion of what God's uh, plan for the world is. That really only happens after the final resurrection of the just and unjust and they're judged and the whole thing is completed. It's not really until then that the great completion of this whole thing happens. There's this thousand year interval before uh, Satan is finally judged. He's released. He gathers together innumerable amounts of people, but specifically these leaders, Gog and Magog, they go to war, they are destroyed. Uh, it's the Gog Magog War. Now, it's a very short version of things. It's like, what, a um, couple sentences encapsulates most of Ezekiel 38 and 39. So a lot of the criticisms of the theory are like, well, here's this other detail in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You didn't mention anything about that. It's like, yeah, well, it's, it's a two-sentence version of that, but but it's the same thing. And I go through every single counter-argument that people can have to it, and it, they're just so easily defeated in my mind. The people that really tried to to have an argument about this, it's just so wrong. I can't understand why anybody that studies the Bible would hold a different view than this. They at least have to come up with a cogent reason why Revelation 20 is not talking about the Gog-Magog War. In my mind, the only thing that you can do is make it two Gog-Magog Wars, with one of which being Armageddon. There is, in my mind, absolutely no reason. And I, could, I go in this in the book about all the things that must happen to complete a Gog-Magog War. I mean, you have to have a complete piece and you have to, I mean, I go through it all, but there's nothing for the people uh, before the 70th week. And I mentioned that because a lot of times when you listen to people talk about, and I've listened to a lot of podcasts recently about, are we in the end times? Yes. Let me tell you why. Because Ergodon in Turkey is, is in the Gog-Magog war and the Gog-Magog war is probably going to happen any moment now. And we all know that the Gog-Magog war will happen any moment. And then that's the start of the end times. It's like, no, that's not even that is not even a defensible position, and it has honestly become the default position of evangelical Christianity, that we're all just waiting for the Gog-Magog war? Anyway, I encourage you, if you're at all curious about this, go BibleProphecyText.com, go to um, Islamic Antichrist Debunked, do a search for the word Gog-Magog, read the chapter about Gog-Magog, where I go through all this stuff. Anyway, all that, this is sort of a special edition reason why we're not in the end times, the Gog-Magog war is not about to happen. I do think it's important 
And for this reason, I would gladly debate somebody on this. I would do a video debate about this issue um, because I think it's important. I think the Antichrist will need you to believe that a Gog-Magog war uh, is the Gog-Magog war that won't be the Gog-Magog war. In fact, I'm pretty certain of this. I'm pretty certain that he wants the world to think that he has the, he is the victor of the Gog-Magog war. That is to say, he is God and uh, he will defend the world and from the enemies of Israel in what certainly the Jews are looking for. The Jews don't have any concept of what we might call Armageddon. Um, and after Armageddon, God rules. I mean, we kind of know that in the Christian world, but in their view, it's Gog Magog and then the Messianic kingdom. You got to have a Gog Magog war. You got to have the Messiah defeat him and you got to have a Messianic kingdom after that. I mean, they think God defeats Gog Magog war, but after that's the Messianic kingdom. So I honestly really think it's important that we don't be deceived about the Gog-Magog War and don't think just any old thing is the Gog-Magog War. Okay, I'm running long here, but I didn't get to my, my reason for doing this podcast. Okay, so here is where I'm going to definitely talk a little bit bad about a particular rapture timing position, which is pre-tribulationalism. As many of you know, I am a pre-rather. I just uh, got done with a film oh, almost a year ago now, the seven pre-trib problems in the pre-wrath rapture, seven pretribproblems.com. Uh, you can also see it on YouTube. So I'm a proud pre-rather. I think that the rapture happens at some unknown point after the midpoint. It could be hours, it could be weeks, it could be years after the midpoint, but it will occur after the midpoint, which means that the church will face the persecution of the Antichrist before the rapture, after the rapture, directly following the rapture, the wrath of God, known as the day of the Lord in scripture, will begin. Anyway, my brainstorm was that pre-tribbers who believe that the rapture can occur at any moment, right? Before I finish this sentence, we could be raptured. It's not uh, dependent upon any of these things I mentioned happening, because remember, they think that the rapture is the first event that occurs in the covenant. And that's, I think, why they have such wishy-washy views on uh, what happens at that first beginning of that seven-year period. You know, this idea that a guy can just declare a peace agreement kind of helps in that theology, because if there are no precursors, that's a fundamentally important thing to understand about pre-tribulationism. There is nothing, no thing in the Bible that must occur before. There's no prophecy in the Bible that we need to look for before the rapture. It can occur at any moment. It could have occurred at any time between uh, the first century until now. So there's no precursors. It could happen at any moment. Um, but once it does happen, the seven-year period will immediately begin. So they'll say, the rapture happens, and I guess out of nowhere, the Antichrist pops out and says, I declare a peace agreement with Israel. You know, says real quick, I guess. <clears throat> and so that happens, and now it just all starts rolling. You know, everything that the Bible talks about then begins. Anyway, that, that combination of theological stuff means that a pre-tribber has no biblical grounds, no way from the Bible to determine a false positive about the end times. Because they inherently believe that if they are here, they have not been raptured yet. Therefore, the very first thing in the seven-year period has not happened, whatever they think that is. And therefore, they could never, if they thought it through, there's no way that they could say an event was happening in the world. They could never say that we are not in the end times. Right? You know, everything that I've been saying in this podcast, I can say with some certainty that we're not in the end times because 
Um, you know, it doesn't look like sacrifices on the temple are going to happen any second now, and there's going to need to be a build up to that. We're going to need a ten nation thing, and there's going to need to be some wars, very specific wars with very specific enemies. Uh, the the birth pains associated with the seals are a lot more information about what that first three and a half years looks like up until the midpoint. So, but to them, none of that makes sense because they wouldn't expect to see any of that in the first place. Which brings me to my overall reason why pre-tribulationalism is a terrible idea is because of the commands to watch for the signs uh, in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus really gives one sermon about the end times. I mean, he talks about it a little bit here and there. But when he gives a sermon on it, it is unambiguously clear, to me at least, if I feel that the main point of that sermon is to watch. He makes it such a big deal that if you don't watch, you're in great danger of being deceived. You have to, number one, here and listen to these signs that I'm telling you, and then it's your job then to watch for them. And he even goes through many parables and saying the reason why the ten virgins or the reason why uh, this uh, unjust servant or whatever, the reason why they were in trouble is because they didn't watch. So watch, therefore, because the Son of Man will come in an hour you don't expect. And he doesn't mean at any moment without any particular signs, because why would he say watch? Why would he make a big deal of watching? No, it's important to watch because, as he said, Watch that you are not deceived, because many will be deceived. Many will say, I'm the Christ, and they will deceive many. Therefore, you watch. You watch. When he sits in the temple, you know I told you that. See, I told you beforehand, is what he says. I told you beforehand. So when you see somebody go out in the desert and saying, I'm the Christ, don't go out there. Don't go out there. Look, I'm telling you right now. They're going to say that. Don't go out there. Don't do it. I'm telling you, watch for those signs. So, that's the reason not to become a pre-tribber, because a pre-tribber will argue till they're blue in the face that what Jesus is saying there is not for them. That stuff is going to happen after I'm gone. I don't need to watch. I don't need to pay attention to no watch. I don't need to worry about who's talking in the desert or whatever. That's just not for me. I will be raptured before that. Matthew 24, 23 says that if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there, do not believe it. Here's what I think is interesting. It says that false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. It's the to deceive that I think is interesting there. The reason that they show signs and wonders is to deceive, if possible, the elect. The whole thing here is a show to try to deceive elect. And while I don't think it is possible to deceive elect, I think it's possible to deceive the people that maybe could have been elect. I mean, it's a theological conundrum, I grant you, but, but he's going to try to deceive Christians. I don't think that Antichrist cares a whit about trying to deceive people that are already, you know, going to hell. In fact, I think he uses the entire Muslim world in order to look like a bad guy and basically just slaughters most of them in order to look like a good guy. My thing here is the thing I'm kind of worried about is that if we go into a new world order and we go into a situation where Christians are persecuted and every Christian that you talk to believes that they're in the end times because after all, they're being killed because of the gospel, because there is a world government, because Nothing, everything is really, really, really bad on an order that we have never even believed possible. Technocratic brain chips and who knows what else and all this stuff is bad, 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 but it's not biblically bad. But we do the same thing that we always do. We make, we make anything the end times. We're, we're ace, aces at that. I mean, we can make anything the end times and we do what we do. We make it the end times because why not? It's a world government and we're being killed and persecuted for being Christians. And then a guy comes and defeats it all. 
and, and validates our Christianity and validates everything else. And it's what we kind of, it's not exactly right, you know, especially if it lasts long enough. That's kind of what I'm worried about. If we're in this gray world for long enough to maybe even go a generation where we're not quite as clear on the gospel and churches are persecuted. So maybe that information is not quite as shared in the meantime, especially if during that whole time, we're just so sure that the end times is upon us. And so we've all, we'll do like the reformers did. And we dig into the idea that this is definitely uh, the antichrist. Let me tell you about how the woman is really, if you take about the popes and the 12 popes and Pope so-and-so, the, the third and pious, the whatever, and go into this just ridiculous theology about it. And we've got this whole thing all figured out in our underground churches, the few of us that are, that are left. And then the Antichrist shows up and he can give us a, you know, I'm doing what looks a lot like what you kind of think I'm supposed to look like, <laughs> but it's not quite right. You know, it's never going to be quite, not quite right because the Antichrist isn't Christ. He's not God. He can't do, that's why he needs the image of the beast, in my opinion, to be in the temple and he can't do it himself. But <clears throat> now I'm definitely rambling and getting off uh, the beaten path onto things that I think will happen that are not necessarily exactly what's going to happen. So, all right, I think that is it for me for today. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.